Well, thank you very much. It is always a, a, a good thing to see all of you. Um, and I get a chance. Hey, there's my good friends right there. Hey, there's good. They're not recording this for uh, the, <laughs> the other site yet, but it is always good to see uh, all of you. And uh, I always get excited as I have an opportunity to share God's word with you. And this week, we kick off a brand new series, right? A brand new series in, um, uh, called How to Live Until Jesus Returns. And it's going to be a study through the book of First Peter. So I highly recommend that you bring your Bibles every week, all right? Every week. So, but before we go any further, would you uh, bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Let's ask God's presence here in this place today. Father, as we come before your word, as always, as we like to pray, we, we hope that we would uh, come with open hearts, open minds, and most, mostly open lives. We pray that your spirit would have his way among us in this place. And as your word is communicated, as we open it up, we, play, we pray that the, the nuggets of truth, Lord God, would impact us on a very deep level, that it would change us in the moment, because we believe with all of our hearts that your word is powerful. So we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you know uh, the way I like to uh, share the word, I usually uh, pray like I did, and I, I usually tell you what passage of scripture that we will be studying today, and then I usually read the scripture, because that's the way I grew up, and that's the way I like to do it, all right? But today, I want to try something a little bit different. So we're going to be studying 1 Peter for the next nine weeks, and it's very exciting, but I don't want you to turn to 1 Peter yet. Is that okay? I know it's going to be like excruciatingly painful for you, but don't turn to 1 Peter. Because I want to teach you something, and I think it's very, very important. You know, I, I believe that in our study of 1 Peter, uh, knowing to whom Peter is writing this letter is just as important as what he is saying, as to understand why he is writing it. And be it, uh, and, and it would hopefully bring us to a better place of understanding what God's word may be saying to us. And what I'm really talking about is about context. I really believe with all of my heart that if we understand who he's writing to, why he's saying the things that he's saying will come alive to us. Okay, so I want to uh, start today, uh, and this will actually serve us well as we go through. Through the next nine weeks, as we understand why this letter was written. Now, this letter was written to the church in uh, the northwest portion of Asia Minor, right? It's the area occupied by present day Turkey. And uh, Paul, believe it or not, was prohibited to travel to this area in Acts 16, verses 6 and 7, perhaps to concentrate his work in Macedonia and, and, and in Greece. But by the time Peter writes this letter, about 15 years later, there seems to be the existence of some churches. That's why he's writing the letter, right? Scholars would tell us that most probably that these churches were more house churches. So don't have in your mind that there's these great Gothic buildings or, you know, great congregations. He's, uh, scholars would tell you, you know what, 
When we say church, it's probably house churches, small gatherings of people who have come to hear the gospel, right, and believed in it. And in certain towns and cities, uh, they would even say that maybe perhaps multiple house churches existed that would consist of a larger kind of a congregation within that town. Now, from the little that we know about the churches in this area, we do know this. Listen carefully. That the, the churches in this area that Peter is writing to were consisted mostly of Gentiles. Gentiles. Now, and we also know that in the writing of this book, usually uh, when we read Paul's letters, there's always this tension. He will bring up this idea of the Jew-Gentile tension or the circumcision-uncircumcision tension. In this letter, we find none of it, which kind of helps us to understand that he is writing to a more homogenized type of people there, and it's most probably Gentile. So most of the church was comprised of the native people of the land. Do you understand? They were comprised of the people that were actually, uh, grew up there or living in that land. They weren't necessarily transplants from Jerusalem, or, but they were native to that land. This made rejection by their neighbors because of their commitment to Christ so much more painful when you think about it. Since they had gone from being completely at home in the culture to being social outcasts because they made a decision to follow Christ, right? So this made their rejection by their neighbors, if there were any, a little bit more keenly painful. Now, a little bit of a political background. When Emperor Trajan sent Pliny to Bithynia to be the governor it was around A.D. 112. Pliny wrote back to Trajan, and this is what he said. The contagion of that superstition, he's referring to Christianity, all right? The contagion of that superstition has penetrated not only the cities, but the villages and the country. And history would tell us that Pliny thought he could actually stamp out Christianity. But Christianity survived. So the church continued to survive. So when the gospel arrived, we know that this happened. That some people believed. And they started to worship the one and only true God. Then as their lifestyle, right, as their lifestyle uh, changed as a result, guess what happened? They stopped worshiping the gods of the empire, right? They stopped worshiping the various gods of their empire, their trade guilds, their cities, and or their families. Now think about this. The change meant that they were now viewed as unpatriotic. Because if a country or a city or an area had a state god that everyone was to worship, they no longer worshiped him. So they were actually viewed as unpatriotic, disloyal to their city, unprofessional in their trade, and haters of their family. So believe it or not, even though many of the people didn't believe in these state or empire gods, they still offer token worship as a sign of their allegiance to the state or to the family. 
So Christians were viewed because of their refusal to worship these other gods, the state-approved gods. They were viewed by the Roman Empire as haters of humankind. Can you believe that? That's the context, right? So they were being socially ostracized, experiencing insults, abuse, rejection, shame, and likely economic persecution with the result of, uh, of the loss of profits and property. Now some of you, I look out there, you're going like this, oh, that's just awful, just awful. But does it sound a little bit familiar to you? So basically, think about it. The fellow citizens that whoever believed in Jesus no longer belonged in their city or family. And making sure they knew it. You know what, basically, the reason why I'm telling you this is that the people that Peter was writing to, as they were experiencing this sort of persecution and trials, I believe they were starting to question. They were starting to question, is this faith worth it? Think about it. If something came at a cost for you, wouldn't you ask the question, hey, is this really worth all the work? They were asking this about their faith in Jesus Christ. And perhaps they were also asking, you know, we heard about that we were saved. This does not feel like I'm saved from anything at this point. When you talk about salvation, why am I in such turmoil and so many trials and persecutions? They were even questioning the, the definition of salvation. What do you mean we are saved? This is the situation that Peter was aware of. So he feels compelled to write them a letter. Let me ask you a question. If you heard about this, what would you write in that letter? What would you write in that letter to them? What would you write to a group of people living in one of the most anti-Christian cities or areas in all of the known world? Does that sound familiar? Right? Would you tell them, don't give up? Right? You'd say, don't give up. Make sure you know the important stuff of the Christian faith. Be encouraged. Don't give up. I know that's what I would write. If I was writing to you, I'd be like, don't give up. But how? What do you say to a group of people that will help them survive through such a situation that they're in? I mean, what could possibly help them? I believe Peter could have written one of two letters. I think uh, one of the letters he could have written was this. Hey guys, this is Peter. I hear that it's pretty tough out there. In uh, probably one of the most anti-post-Christian uh, areas of, of our country. Look, I think it may be dangerous to keep gathering like you're doing. I don't want to look, I mean, I want to look out for your safety. So be really careful how you show that you're a believer. 
Here's a bit of advice. Blend in. Huh? Huh? Is that something that you may, this is a letter that he could have heard. Blend in. I mean, I'll leave it up to you what to do when you start getting pushback on your beliefs. But choose your battles carefully. I mean, come on, if you don't have your health, what else do you have, right? Man, I would feel really bad if I heard that you've lost your business or that your neighbors were talking smack behind your back and looking at you like you were weird or something. I know how hard you've worked at getting to where you are in life now. And God wouldn't want you to feel like it's all for waste or anything. So yeah, here's a suggestion for you. You've already been saved, so keep that in your back pocket. Just ride this out, and remember, Jesus is coming back one day, y'all. But be safe. Peace out. Peter. One of a couple letters that Peter could have wrote. You know, if Peter did write a letter like this, let me tell you the theology that would come out of a letter such as this. Be, uh, this is one theological point that would come out. It's like, being saved is a one moment in time thing. That I was saved once. That's all. That's important. Or this, uh, this theology of no suffering involved in following Christ. Right? There should be no suffering involved in following Christ. Or my, my personal favorite, the theology of the train thicket. Train ticket theology. I got my train ticket to uh, glory. I'm okay. Or this one. Survive theology versus thrive theology. We're just called to survive. Just make it. You know, last year there was a movie that came out called 12 Years a Slave. Anybody see that movie? Anybody see that movie? Wow. Not a lot of you seen. I I encourage you to watch that movie. It's uh, the premise was there was a man by the name of Solomon Northrup. He was a New York State born, free African American. He actually lived up in Saratoga Springs. Who was kidnapped in Washington D.C. in 1841, and was sold into slavery. Northrup worked on plantations in the state of Louisiana for 12 years before his release. That's the premise of this movie. It's a true story, too. There's this one scene in the movie that I will not forget. After years of being in slavery, there's this moment when an opportunity is presented to perhaps run. Run for freedom. But he hesitates. There's this look on his face with a shovel in his hand, doing the work of a slave. And in that moment, there's this tension, right? Do I just keep quiet and just survive? Or do I run and be the free man that I am? It's this incredible moment in the movie where the tension is just so palpable. And for me, it was this question that he struggled with. Am I to be a product of my environment or am I a product of who I really am? Am I a product of my environment or am I who I really 
am. Because based on the way he was going to answer that question, it was going to define his actions. Because if he had believed after 10 years, after having been born a free man, but after 10 years being a slave, because of his environment told him that, was he going to continue working the fields? It was going to define his actions, right? But if he remembered who he was as a free man, he was going to take the risk and try to set himself free. See, his paradigm was going to define his actions. Do you understand that aspect? His paradigm was going to define his actions. Slave paradigm, act as a slave. Respond as a slave. I mean, there were powerful scenes in the movie where uh, another slave was just getting whipped and whipped, and all the other slaves just walked about their own business because they didn't want to get in trouble, right? Or a free paradigm where you act as a free man. What an incredible thing, isn't it? For us as, for us as Christians, really. Can I be sarcastic for a woman? And I'm not quite sure if I, I'm a good sarcastic person. But can I have your permission to be sarcastic? Because hey, remember, kids, sarcasm is not good, okay? So uh, don't do as I do. I'm just using it as an illustrative point, right? Just give me permission to be sarcastic. I mean, come on. Who professes their faith, love, and commitment to Christ would want to live a life where all you're doing is surviving until the next thing? I mean, who would want to do Doesn't that sound ridiculous? Don't do anything to risk being ostracized by your circle of friends and family simply because you now live by different standards. Don't live in any way that would bring attention to the change that God is making in your life that coworkers would think that you're some kind of weird instead of some kind of wonderful. I mean, who would do that? Live just for the safety of now. And don't keep the promises of God at the forefront of your daily reality and existence. Doesn't that just sound absolutely crazy that people would even consider living like that? Who would, he, who would actually have our actions be defined by the environment rather than our convictions of who God has told us we are? That just doesn't happen. End sarcasm. But does it? I don't think Peter would write such a letter. See, he understood what it was to be like a product of his environment. What it felt like to succumb to peer pressure. When he betrayed the very man he professed he would die for. The very man he called Lord and Savior. Excellent. He understood after the fact what it felt like to crack under the pressure. Valuing his present reality more than the value of the promised eternity. He knew what it felt like. 
He knew what was at stake. And I suppose he despised himself for it in hindsight. He denied Jesus three times. He denied his mentor. He depreciated his savior. He minimized his faith in his God. And according to John's gospel, when Jesus had time alone with Peter after his resurrection, he asked Peter three times, do you love me? It was the third time Peter, being grieved that Jesus asked, he answered, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This was Jesus' reply. Verses 17 and 18. Feed my sheep. Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. See, Peter knew the situation very well. And as he heard about the budding church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he wrote this letter. He wanted to remind them of the process of salvation that they were privileged to be in the midst of. That there was an inheritance awaiting them in heaven, kept just for them, guaranteed, safe, just for them. Because they believed. And because of this guaranteed inheritance, they should endure the various trials that would come. And that those very trials, though uncomfortable, should result in praise and glory and honor to God the Father. That they're not suffering for naught, but that their reaction to every and every situation on earth was for the purpose for testing the genuineness of their faith. Which ultimately leads to the salvation of their souls. He wanted them to remember the value of their faith worth more than any earthly thing and that this faith was the reason for the salvation of their souls. Now turn with me to 1 Peter. Turn with me to 1 Peter. This is what he was compelled to write. This is how he began. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying salvation is a gift. We didn't do anything to warrant it. God has caused us to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. 
He goes on to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who? See verse 5, who? He's referring to them. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. What is this in this? And this is the work that God is doing. He's not talking about their faith. He's talking about what God has done. Salvation. He says, in this you rejoice. Now though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent him, Sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you sense, do you sense what he's trying to get across to these people? Salvation is the gift that keeps on giving. It's not a point in time, it is a process. And it will be complete one day when we stand before Jesus. And, and until then, our faith is the most important and valuable asset for us. Don't give up, he says. The new lives we have in Jesus Christ points to a guaranteed inheritance that should give us an active and living hope for the present. Now listen, I don't know where you are, where you may be in your spiritual walk. But I think this may be a problem for some of us. It may be a real challenge for us to have this eternalist perspective on our existence, our time here. Maybe there's this great fear that if I live like this, Pastor, I fear the same things that those people feared back in Peter's day that I will be ostracized, and where I think I belong, I will no longer belong. It's a fear of not fitting in. I tell you, Jesus on a cross lost his place in the royal family, belonged to no one on a cross, was buried in a tomb that wasn't even his. For a moment in time, God turned his back on his only son who bore our sins 
to die on our cross so that we may have life eternal. And I tell you, until you and I come to terms with this, the pull of the current world community calling us to belong in their world, we will never be able to separate and live like you belong to another world. If the fear of losing your place in the world haunts you, it will always be a struggle to get out of that line. You know what it is, right? I'm always in a rush to check out at a store. And when there's a long line, I try to choose the shortest line possible. But if I'm in a hurry, I'm looking for the shortest line, and I'm going, do I leave this line? Oh, gosh, if I leave this line, I may just... And there's this fear of leaving the line. Don't get out of line. Don't give up. Ultimately, everyone checks out. I'll end with this, which I believe sums up Peter's reason for beginning his letter in this way. And hopefully it will help us to understand all the things that he's telling us how to live in the chapters to come. Author Peter Kreeft asks us to imagine the day when sin, death, and evil are finally defeated by Christ. Can you just imagine that day? Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future. And you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, You could have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch. On a penny. Don't give up. Your faith is your greatest asset. And our hope is in the inheritance that is guaranteed in heaven. This is the message that Peter starts off his letter to, to this people. And I hope that you have sensed that, you know what? There's not a lot of difference between them and us. Because he's challenging each and every one of us. Don't give up any of your faith simply because of the fear of the situation that you're in. That if we don't give up and persevere and be faithful... We will bring praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ on that day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And we are so thankful for this new journey that we are about to take into 1 Peter. Lord, it is not lost on us that the people that he's writing to we're probably struggling with the same issues that we have been. 
that we are. Seeming the same pressures, the same cultures. I believe that this letter could be written to us. That as Peter completely understands the pressures on us, Lord, he would say the same thing. Don't give up. The faith that we have in Jesus Christ is more valuable than anything else. That our inheritance is waiting for us. That we are called to live until Jesus returns with this eternal perspective. We thank you for this encouragement. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Justin. We're going to transition now into today's tithes and offerings. I ask you guys to just come forward.